I'm not a preacher, and I'm not drunk. I'm just a politician. Everybody, come out of your houses. Clarence Hillian is going to make you a super human being. Hello and welcome to the very first edition, the maiden voyage of Crackpot Cinema with Mike McPadden and Aaron Lee. I'm Mike McPadden, author of Teen Movie Hell and Heavy Metal Movies. Joining me across the country from Los Angeles is Aaron Lee. Thanks for having me, Mike. Uh, Who am I? I'm your, uh, (laughs) good Lord. That music was really loud, Mike. <laughs> I didn't mean it in an existential sense. Uh, no, Aaron's no. a uh, big shot uh, Hollywood writer and producer. He was the executive producer of Family Guy. Uh, it's a funny man. Yes. And, uh, thank, we, thank you for that introduction. I, I couldn't hear you over the blasting theme song. Who, uh, who was how that? How great is that song? Who was that? Well, incredibly first off, did you notice music. The, <laughs> did you notice the rhythm guitar on that track? Was that hot? Oh, my God, was it hot? Who was playing so that? that was... Uh, Blew that was a little ditty called Fire Pigs, a tribute to America's heroes by a band called Gaze in the Military. Uh, opening up with uh, a little sample, uh, like the kids do these dope days, from uh, the great Timothy Carey in The World's Greatest Sinner. So uh, that was my old band playing Fire Pigs. Fantastic. So uh, this is our inaugural edition of Crackpot Cinema, a show that was almost called thriller a cruel podcast which was a name that cracked me up every time i said it um and made everyone else who heard it say you're doing a show about michael jackson yeah so and in this uh, climate i just don't think uh <laughs> i just don't think we can I, do that well i'll be the word cruel in there we would just we would just make mean jokes at michael jackson's <laughs> expense these days or in his support yeah either way yeah well we, we think we do a point counterpoint switch off every week i think sure so um so for our, so Aaron and I go back uh, 27 years, uh, back when I was publishing a zine out of Brooklyn called Happy Land, and Aaron was publishing a zine out of Lexington, Kentucky called Blue Persuasion, and our twain doth meet. Um, and then uh, within a few years, we were both working at Hustler Magazine. And from there, uh, in 1994, Aaron and I went to lunch at a famous uh, Frankfurter-shaped restaurant called The Tale of the Pup in L.A., and talked about we hatched a plan to write a book, a complete encyclopedia to 1970s and 80s teen sex comedies. Mm-hmm. And uh, on that day, it was born. And for the f- next 25 years, uh, Aaron went on to become a uh, well-loved and uh, well-known and highly regarded television executive. And I spent that quarter century working on that book, which just came out last year and is available at Amazon and anywhere books are shoplifted so for our very first edition of crackpot cinema given our professional history we're going to focus on dirty magazine movies and i tried to say that so that you could hear the parentheses in magazine so dirty magazine movies and i think we should begin with uh you know the the gland daddy of them all the people versus larry flint which began shooting right when I left, which is another key career decision of mine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I left in uh, early 96. The movie came out at the end of 96. And uh, I went back to Brooklyn. Aaron stayed in LA. And um, here we are. So I hated this film when I first saw it. Now, Mike, did you did you see it at the premiere? Did you did you go to the? No, no, no. I was I was in. Brooklyn. You were in was, New York. I, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. No, I was I was like drunk and on drugs in the, what Aaron called my Travis Bickle apartment, yeah. which was a living nightmare. Well, in fairness, I said it was a shittier apartment than Travis Bickle's <laughs> apartment, right. which it was. He's Aaron said you like called Travis it. Bickle, you called what? it the Travis Bickle apartment. Yeah, okay. I said no. This you, is far shittier. Right. He had a decent. You corrected apartment. me. Yes. You said Travis Bickle at least had some shit up on his walls. Yes. <laughs> uh, it was the back room of a candy store that the family no longer used that owned it and had no heat, which I only found out when it got cold. 
and uh, my toothpaste froze. But anyway, those were dark days, and uh, Aaron's star was rising, and my star my, <laughs> crashed. Well, my star was not rising. My star was <laughs> at Hustler Magazine, and and was for the next I don't know three years or something or yeah. whatever well, it then was. You became the the editor in chief of Chic. Let's not downplay anything here. And then um, I was punished. Uh, I skipped work for a week to go shoot a commercial, to, to shoot an appearance in a commercial, and I was punished by being made the editor of Leg World magazine, the foot fetish <laughs> magazine. I was devoted was important for, hierarchy there. for like three weeks to Leg World magazine. So yeah, wow. that was my hustler career. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I was in the, so you were not in the offices while they were shooting this at the office. No, they, I, the very beginning I was there, I saw, uh, I saw the whole cast. I didn't see, uh, Courtney Love. I did hear Larry once complain about Courtney Love before she was part of the movie. Oh, wow. What was um, his complaint? I heard him. I was doing the cartoon edit with him because I, I was the entertainment editor. So part of that was doing the sitting and going through the cartoons every month with Larry Flint. And uh, he was just talking to the phone. He's like, I don't want Courtney Love in this goddamn movie. Wow. Yeah. Who, yeah. who did he want? Did he say, get Sally Field? Sharon Stone. What's Diane Keaton doing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jenna James. <laughs> um. Well, but you, but but that was uh, ridiculous, Larry, because uh, she made the movie in a lot of ways. She certainly got a huge amount of attention and buzz out of it, and she I, was nominated for an Oscar. Yeah, I think I think her uh, her you know indie cred uh, brought a lot to the. I mean, a hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I don't yeah. know if Larry uh, should be casting. If Larry <laughs> should be casting. I mean, eventually movies. he was like, "I love you, Courtney." Um. But, you know, do you remember who was initially announced as starring in the film? Oh, Bill Murray? Bill Murray. That's right. That's yeah. right. I do remember that. God, that would have been great. Oh, I would have loved yeah. that. Yeah. So uh, I was, you know, so I was out of my mind it, it just despising everything about life, in particular Hustler Magazine, when, when this film came out. And I saw it, and I, I despised the movie, and, and that was it. And I hadn't really seen I had not seen it at all, except for, you know, moments on cable. Since then, and I revisited it, and uh, I remember you liked it initially, yes? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I thought it was a good time movie. And, and you know, I did ask about the premiere because, because I was working there at the time. I did get to go to the premiere, and that's always exciting when you get to be at a movie premiere and, you know, sure. see the stars sitting around. I, I've seen some of the shittiest movies you could ever imagine at the premiere. Freddy Got Fingered is a premiere I went to with Tom Green. <laughs> wow. And it was like, hey, it was pretty good. Yeah, that was yeah, pretty cool. funny. Well, you got to be with me there with Rip Torn and everything. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. so, yes, when I saw it, the first time I saw it, yes, I absolutely enjoyed it. I remember you barreling into the Fonz at a premiere by mistake, like knocking <laughs> Henry over Winkler. Well, that was yeah. not a premiere that I was invited to. That was when I first moved to, I first moved to L.A. and I snuck into uh, a building to use their bathroom. I was like out trying to catch the bus <laughs> and I came out the was wrong it Arnold's exit. driving? <laughs> no, no. God, no, that was his office. That's different. No, I, I came out of the <laughs> wrong exit onto a red carpet and knocked into Henry Winkler and knocked him over. <laughs> and was always like, man, I knocked over the Fonz. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah, wow. childhood Thumbs dream. down to you on that one. Whoa. Yeah. So uh, so let's talk about revisiting the movie. Um, I'll go first, I guess. Uh, I was watching it and... The first half hour, I was like, okay, I, I am watching now without prejudice, and I'm enjoying this. This is good. Um, mm -hmm. And then I thought it turned terrible and stayed terrible the rest of the way through. And we could talk about why. What was your initial reaction? It, it was, I, you know, it definitely that first act is kind of fun and popping yeah. and exciting. And um, and then it, I, I my reaction was it, it just becomes so episodic. I mean, there's yeah, there's no yes, it, it's it's not particularly well structured. And by the time at all, by the time you're getting to the Supreme Court stuff at the end, it's so uh, uh it, it's. It's so anticlimactic. It's so anticlimactic by the end of what's just been this 
very episodic run through of crazy episodes from Larry's life. And yes, that seemed disconnected and not part of a larger plot and get repetitive and and go down such rabbit holes of incidents that you and I from working at Flint Publications know about Larry's life. But uh, oh, my God, the, the whole thing about. Ruth what? Carter Stapleton. Well, Ruth Carter Stapleton, the whole thing about who, who's the woman he claimed to have the sex tapes of. Uh, he He's suddenly in the oh, middle of court. Yeah. Oh, God, I can't even remember her name. I but can't remember. But it, it's just yeah. the most obscure kind of uh, parts of Larry's yeah. life that, yes, definitely you do kind of get the feeling it doesn't add up to much. And once Courtney Love, once the character she's played, Althea Flint, dies – you don't even have that kind of uh, emotional hook anymore. So, so yeah, I I agree. It I, I don't I don't know that I disliked it as much as you did. I I I love the guys that wrote it, of course, uh, Scott yeah. Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, and and I think they are good at that kind of. Um, their movies are always exaggerated. You don't you don't get a feeling. Right. We know this isn't what really happened. Uh, it, they're, right. they're playing it up for for the movies. But, uh, yes, this is one of their less well-structured I mean, I would scripts. say I think they've gotten great. I think uh, Tim Burton took their script for Ed Wood and really made just a perfect movie out of that because they just focused on the road to Plan 9 in Ed Wood. And the Flint movie might have worked if they focused on the road to the Supreme Court decision. Yeah. But there are so many stupid detours and just... What annoyed me at the time, of course, is like all the we have to go back and talk about the culture of the 90s and where, uh, you know, Clinton was president. Uh, if you didn't love Larry Flint and pornography and sexual degradation and horrible jokes, you were a stuffed shirt. You yeah, were, you were part you of were the on problem the side. Of, yeah, you were part of the problem. You know, it is the absolute funhouse looking glass mirror crash through the other side now. Um, and, you know, this was the era that also gave us uh, you know, the most acclaimed film of the late 90s was American Beauty, which is a fucking riot to describe now. Where you're like, oh, it's uh, about a, a pedophile who's the hero. Uh, and he's played by Kevin Spacey. And he really socks it to the suburbanites. Right. And, 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 and the uptight, uh, pain in the ass, priggish woman who's so frigid, yeah. who he's married to, yeah. who's ruining everything. You, you know, another movie that I thought would be a good double bill with this is Howard Stern's Private Parts, which is another yeah. like the triumph of the vulgarian yeah. over those yeah. uptight people who don't like uh, sexual material. So, yeah, yeah it's another, very, another nice. very, I mean, not, not, you know, I mean, Private Parts is terrible. Um but it's not, it's, it's, I mean, it's kind of enjoyable as, as, you know, a, a Howard Stern fan for up, you know, every day up until about 10 years ago. Um, but there is the, the dialogue is so embarrassing in that film. And we've talked about this many times. The big cringe moment that was always played up as like the great moment in the movie where pig vomit, the boss and the other guy are talking and saying, well, we took this poll. People who hate him, uh, listen for an, uh, you know, people who love him listen for him an hour a day. The main reason, I can't wait to hear what he says next. People who hate him listen for two hours a day. The main reason, I can't wait to hear what he says next. Right. right. Just awful. And there's awful shit in that, like in Larry Flint also. Um, the dialogue that I've always truly hated in, in the Larry Flint movie is uh, after the Jackie Kennedy nudes run, Courtney Love is doing the, uh, she's using her, her uh, adding machine. And she just says to him, take your pants off. He's like, what? Take your pants off. He's like, why? And she goes, I never fucked a millionaire before. And we're supposed to be like, woo! <laughs> right. Uh, and they, and that oh, is the thing. They they are very yeah. mainstream screenwriters in that way. There's there's lots of like, I mean, uh, which which I think is, is good and bad about many of their movies. Uh, they, they do lots of scenes like uh, the one that jumped out at me was, Larry hanging around with his buddies who are all smoking dubes, including Vince Chevelli <laughs> from Fast oh, Times, yeah, right. yeah, smoking yeah. a dupe. Yeah, Mr. Vargas from Fast Times. Yeah, and and he's and Larry's, uh, you know, holding court with an issue of Playboy, saying, "Did you read this month's Playboy? You know, did you enjoy yeah. the article about hooking up your quadraphonic sound system? Like, like such a." <laughs> 
movie way of showing you like i'm not this elitist you know this elitist guy or or the scene where he gives the big patent speech in front of the perfectly edited montage of clips to show you sex is not as offensive as violence and 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 this is what i mean about this stuff like it's it's not realistic larry flint didn't have that good an editor back then you know to produce anything So, right. yeah, to me, there's a part you have to take the ride and go, okay, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it's it's corny mainstream movie time. But, but, uh, but the, the, the stack decking was uh, yes, <laughs> very annoying. And, and the casting of, uh, I believe the actor's name is Richard Paul as Jerry Falwell, who had previously best been known for playing parodies of TV evangelists on sitcoms in the 70s. And it's like they dusted him off. Because he's a little fat turd that looks like Jerry Falwell. So it's like, let's put him up against handsome, charismatic movie icon Woody Harrelson. God, and, uh, talk about a man of his out. time. How, how, like, yeah. how lucky did that guy get that yep. he yep. was a, a fat little guy who looked like Jerry Falwell acting yep. at that time? Any other time, he wouldn't get to have a movie career. And uh, no. he got to play Jerry Falwell all the time. Yeah, Fantastic. I mean, well, I mean, you know, he got to in the '80s when Jerry Falwell was very prevalent. He made all those sitcom appearances, and then, uh, yeah, and then, <laughs> and then, yeah, ten, fifteen years later, he was like, "Wow, here's your, here's your golden opportunity." Uh, we should talk about the insane reviews that this movie got because the political atmosphere at the time was so uh, pro sex, pro gross sex, pro you know the '90s. We've talked about this as offensive zine publishers. Um, the zeitgeist of the 90s was was just really just decadence and nihilism. And, yeah. Uh, you know, the, the underground world that we came from was all about, you know, uh, Nazis and, and serial killers and child pornographers. And, uh, you know, having, like, and if you dared to criticize that, you were some kind of stuffed shirt. And uh, I think eventually that bubbled up into the mainstream through things like, you know, Larry Flint getting these insane reviews, but also eventually uh, a place dear to you, Family Guy, and of course, South Park. And sure. then, um, I think it infected the bloodstream of society so much that we've now had this overcorrection of modern life. Um, but it, it's an interesting thing. And I mean... It was the hosannas rained down upon this film were so insanely uh, foaming and and you know just just the hyperbole of what a masterwork this was, how important it was, and you know completely insincere. And, and it's um, it's funny that they it's funny that they followed it up the same two writers uh, Alexander and Kerry Suski with uh, with Milos Forman directing again with the Andy Kaufman biopic Man on yeah. the Moon that I feel like. That just didn't happen. People just didn't care as much. And yeah, maybe it was just the, like you're saying, it was just the very zeitgeist thing of the Clinton era, uh, yeah. first, first dawn of online porn. Uh, yeah. yeah, this one kind of big blowout of, uh, uh, pro porn socking it to the prudes. Yeah. And I mean, I used to say, you know, in my very pretentious way, but I think there's, there's truth in this. That I was, I mean, aside from being, you know, d- disgusting, you know, d- sex addict degenerate, um, I was drawn to pornography, like, sort of as, as an aesthetic, because as a kid in the 70s and the 80s, it was the one issue that both the extreme right and the extreme left were in equal opposition to. And then in the 90s, that got ruined because suddenly with Clinton, you know, I mean, you had it just, you know, you had this, this. Again, let's say just a you know degenerate sex addict mess in the White House that everybody loved because he was on the right side of all the issues of all our you know mainstream liberal media tastemakers um, that that would you know do things like make a Larry Flint movie and promote it as Larry Flint is the greatest hero of, in American history. Um, so that kind of ruined the party for me. Um, but uh, certainly, and I didn't give up on pornography at that point. And it's something that you know. I feel like uh, the culture is having this giant reckoning with now. Is yes, as yeah. people look back on feminist defenses of Bill Clinton at the time, and and yeah. how God, there, there's that famous uh, symposium that was in the New York Times of of uh, female writers at the time who were basically saying like. 
uh, you know, this Monica Lewinsky, I would have done the same thing if it was Bill Clinton. Yeah. Yes, uh, yes, a lot right. of it yeah. was, uh, however, unconsciously defending his actions. But yeah. but it's also funny, Mike, that I can't help but when Donald Trump, the whole time he was campaigning, I really felt like this is this is Larry's presidential campaign that he ran in, what was it, 80, 84? 84. 84. 84. This is his 84 campaign done successfully. It, it it really I mean Trump is but a, again the you know the the looking glass is that you know it would have been the Bible Belt rednecks that were appalled by uh, Larry in '84 who actually voted for the Larry Flint candidate in 2016. You know, in theory, you do wonder. I don't know. It does make you wonder. Like there were more gatekeepers then who would have kept Larry Flint off the air. You, you know, yeah, he was yeah. he was trying to buy time to show hardcore porn on network television, all right, and and right. there were gatekeepers at that point that were just yeah. obliterated by the time of Trump. And so there's a part of me that does wonder, like. That's true, but if that if they hadn't been in the way, maybe a lot of those same people would have been into Larry's campaign. You know, who yeah, who the hell maybe, knows? But yeah. Trump certainly. Um, well, let's say like the evangelicals who got behind Trump. Uh, you know, despite you know this being this very Larry Flint esque character, right? Um, you know, I think that that's the big swing. That's the difference between then and now. Yeah. But but you know even just just think about how easy Larry could have played his Christian uh, his Christian yeah. uh, you know makeover card and yeah, yeah. But God does that go nowhere in the movie is that a terrible side there's also the just... long diversion for the DeLorean stuff the, the John DeLorean, DeLorean saga so boring Who which cares? goes on yeah. yeah it's it's yeah it's really tough the way it's funny though talking about you're saying Tim Burton made a great movie out of Ed Wood and. Yeah. And from what I understand, that is their script. I mean, beginning to end. Like they, said, he, they said no notes yeah, yes. on the Gilbert podcast. Yeah. And it is a very similar structure of when you were saying, like, that's the road to Plan 9 and this could have been yeah. the road to Supreme Court. But it's a similar structure of the tragic drug addicted character who's the emotional core, you know, and their yeah. codependent relationship with our hero who dies towards the end and, and then... But but the Plan Nine stuff really is a montage at the end. If you think about yes, it, once Bell totally, Lugosi yeah. dies, we essentially go yeah. to a montage and his right. big triumphant premiere, and it's over. And that right. yeah, that's probably the thing that uh, would have helped here would have been to tighten up right. that tighten up that stuff. I want to call something stuff. out because it doesn't get called out enough about uh, Ed Wood. There is one scene that annoys me, and again, this this kind of goes back to the screenwriters as gatekeepers and tastemakers and uh you know bending history to a particular agenda which is when edward ducks into the bar in hollywood and he sees uh orson wells who's drinking and lamenting his uh, fate in hollywood as an abandoned genius and uh the big gag line is uh they made me cast charlton heston as a mexican and the actual fact is that four touch of evil Charlton Heston was already cast, and he fought to get Orson Welles to direct the movie. Right. So I just want to, you know, everybody's everybody's got, uh, again, everybody stacks the deck, as we do here on Crackpots in our, <laughs> in our own favor, and we'll continue to. And, and, and you know, I think, I think they were really at a disadvantage here. This is one thing I thought watching the movie. Ed Wood, so fantastic. Dolomite is my name. I loved it. And totally. Larry's yeah. just not that lovable. He's just not. No. And they do a great no. job starting the movie with Larry in poverty as a child to build the sympathy. Yeah. But he's just not a lovable guy like Ed Wood or or Rudy Ray Moore. And right. uh, and you just I personally, yeah, you just can't get behind like, man, I really want him to accomplish being uh, the world's sleaziest pornographer. <laughs> it's just really hard to go, God, I want him to pull that off. The, the other thing I thought was interesting was... The, the, here's the thing I did not notice so much when I saw the movie years ago, Working at Hustler, because I was out of my mind, like you're saying, but I, because I was insane, is the yeah. interesting approach and kind of gentle dance around really presenting Larry as mentally ill. And, sure. and at one point, I think that, like, I, 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 and I think, you know, the behavior you see Larry exhibit is probably more like bipolar or, yeah. but, uh, but they do kind of have characters kind of address like this is a mentally ill guy, which, right. which I think is, 
that that kind of would have been interesting to explore a little bit more. Um, but but I you get the feeling it they're working. They made this movie so closely with Larry that it's kind of dancing around that side of it, and 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 that keeps it from being. So so it's so it's not the crazy the fun comedy romp you want it to be, but it's also right. not the kind of heavy drama that you kind of, kind of want it to be either. So right. yeah, you definitely get kind of a fish nor fowl thing there. Right. All right. So let's move on. Uh, what do you want to talk next? Look of Love or Porn King? Well, you know, I kind let's... of feel like we should we should do Look of Love because Porn uh, okay. King I feel like we should save. What okay. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> okay. Sure. Yeah, and and Look of Love is also a, a, an interesting, um, uh, and it, it's it, like the the biopic. It's still got some of the same. It's definitely got okay, some well, of the same issues. Little, as let me just introduce what the movie is. So, Look of Love is a movie from 2013, directed by Michael Winterbottom uh, about uh, Paul Raymond, who is sort of the um, combined. Hefner, Guccione, and Larry Flint of England, and a fascinating figure, died the richest man in uh, England, and uh, largely unknown in the United States. Uh, his big magazine was called Men Only, but I, he also put out Knave and Mayfair, which if you, uh, as I'm sure, Aaron, you are, if you bought the <laughs> three magazine shrink-wrapped beauty packs in the 80s, do you remember those? Yeah. So and, you'd get like it would have like Hustler on one side, Club on the other, and then a magazine in the middle. It was always Knave or Mayfair or some Mayfair. really crappy softcore British magazine. I definitely but, remember the title Mayfair. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know White House and Playbirds and all of those, and um, and White House, uh, and they they avoided this in the movie. Um, White House was named after uh, was a mag a porno magazine named after. Uh, a woman named Mary Whitehouse, who was the British equivalent of Larry Flint, was the anti-porn campaigner. And so was the great uh, noise rock band White House, was also named after her. But uh, So Paul Raymond was the publisher of Men Only and a host of other British magazines. Fiona Richmond was uh, their signature model and uh, their kind of Xavier Hollander, but much more of a bigger personality. If you want to get real deep pornophile she was like the gloria leonard at high society she wrote a column that'd be you know she was ostensibly running the magazine and, uh, and i gotta tell you she really was the hook here seeing this yeah. watching this movie again for me because i do remember seeing her movie on cinemax late at night at like set like uh you know friday saturday night at midnight fiona on fire i remember which, that sure which was like her meta um uh her movie where she's playing herself and it's the Fiona right. Richmond story. So, so right. yeah, she's a, she's a fascinating character. Yeah. And, and again, akin to like, uh, you know, inside, uh, or all about Gloria Leonard, which was about her working at high society and following her around for the day. So, um, so, uh, so this film look of love, uh, came out to little fanfare, uh, despite, you know, major director Michael Winterbottom, the great Steve Coogan in the lead, a uh, very talented cast, uh, and a fascinating story full of naked bodies and sex and drugs, and uh, a complete dud. A complete zero of a movie to me. Well, definitely not a fun movie. And, and uh, like, and fascinating how <laughs> you were talking about the how those British magazines like Mayfair and how they were kind of like, ugh, you, you know, if you yeah, saw one. Right. And the, the here's the funny thing I will say. This movie effectively conveys, like you said, with all the naked people running around, you do get this exhausted feeling. The nudity's not fun. <laughs> no, Nobody not. looks like they're having and, a good time. And they're beautiful people they're beautiful women in this but movie i was like i've never been depressed. more bored by this you, yeah, by depressed. Yeah. you i think you really here's the thing i will say it genuinely conveys the exhaustion and boredom and misery of living in 1960s england that we that, we, <laughs> yeah. that is not the swinging yeah baby austin power time <laughs> yeah. how it was like gray and shitty yeah. and traumatized from world war ii and and a nude review was like a relief and then even it was not much fun, and and that well so it was it was amazing because you had to put on a tuxedo to go see it, and it was in a theater, 
and there would be like a lion on the stage. That was pretty amazing. Right. The, uh, the yes. topless lion to him or girls. But uh, yeah, yeah. You and we should talk that about that, um, the 60s in England, because I know where you're coming. You're coming from Morrissey's biography. Sure. I'm coming from uh, John Lydon's most recent biography, Rotten. And they both, and therein lies the difference between uh, my personality and Aaron's is Morrissey versus Johnny Rotten. <laughs> um, but they both really powerfully convey the misery of England. And Morrissey talks about the only uh, sparkle of light and color was Dr. Smith from Lost in Space. <laughs> Right. And uh who John he basically Lydon's- spent the rest of his life emulating. <laughs> and uh John Lydon says he got it from Steptoe and Son, which was the uh British sitcom about a you know an angry evil junk man and who would torture his adult son that lived with him. That was then remade as Sanford and Son. But um so yeah, this movie's a big zero, and you talk about montages. It's one montage after another, set to the most on-the-nose soundtrack. I took a note that said, great songs, lame soundtrack. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, sure. let's have a Roxy Music song. Let's not pick Love is the Drug. And that's kind of the whole thing the whole way through. Although I did kind of enjoy, I, I, as an obsessive Steve Coogan fan, I did kind of enjoy the use of Sweet's uh, Wig Wham Bam. Wig Wham Bam was an excellent choice. Yeah, and, that was and the also, choice. And, yeah. and I don't know if this was, was a deliberate like meta joke on his part, but there's a famous uh, brass eye, Chris Morris's British sketch show, that the guy who started out Steve Coogan's career, Brass Eye has a famous sweet parody sketch called Playground Shangalang about like pedophilia, <laughs> <laughs> like picking up girls oh, yeah. the playground. That is a yes. parody of Wig Wham Bam. So, so I couldn't, I couldn't help but think that was a kind of a cool shout out to have uh, sure. Wig Wham Bam yeah. in the middle. Um, yeah, but uh, but you know the thing I was starting to say at the beginning about this being a good companion for people versus Larry Flint is that it's another pre Me Too biography of our pornographer um but it's but it's the sheen is off like in people versus larry flint it was like wow this guy is wild and crazy this one is just close enough to me too that you can tell they're like well this isn't that fun we're not really having a good time i didn't get the impression that coogan seemed to feel any particular affinity for him no like it's 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 a completely uh listless performance there's nothing there well, I will say when he started doing his Sean Connery imitation in the middle at one point, yeah. I did feel like this is Coogan by the numbers. It does it does feel like yeah. he's phoning it in. Yeah. Um and and you know, and and the in terms of being a pre Me Too biopic, it has I always think another biopic that you would never make today is Walk the Line with Joaquin Phoenix, you know, the Johnny oh, Cash movie. Where where all these movies are about like, here's the guy who's out doing drugs, getting fucked up. Having having three ways, and then there's a nagging, boring wife that we cut to at home, going like, "You left me alone with the kids again," and he goes like, right. "Oh, leave me alone." And you're supposed to kind of feel bad for her, but she's in literally two scenes to just show right. you like, "Oh, what a drag." And you yeah. and you do get that here as well. You know, you do right. definitely get the feeling of like. And I think what changed culturally with that was. Uh, Breaking Bad just pushed that too far. <laughs> That's it. Yes. Yeah. With yeah. Walter White's wife. It was like, all right. Breaking Bad may have trope. <laughs> yes. But but the but the thing I will say about this movie, uh, in defense of it, and by the way, this is just what the whole show is gonna be, is you saying this movie sucks and me going like, well, there's this one good thing about it. That's what the That's entire what podcast yeah. is. Yeah. yeah. But the thing the thing I find interesting about this movie is that it's it, it is a piece with the other Michael Winterbottom, Steve Coogan movies, which are all about middle-aged men facing aging, uh, okay, how yeah. that fits in with sex and success. Well, talk and about those other movies quick. The the other movies are uh, Tristam Shandy, which is the first. Well, no, it's not. It's not the first one he did. He did Twenty Four Hour Party People with Michael Winterbottom. Which is a great, great movie. An amazing, fantastic yeah. movie. I mean, uh, really, really one of the best rock movies ever made. Yeah. <clears throat> Tristam Shandy, in which Coogan is playing himself, or, or actually, yeah, I think he's playing himself in that one. And then two movies, well, actually, uh, with a comedian named Rob Bryden, the Trip movies, three movies, right. um, 
uh, a British TV series called The Trip that they've compiled into a series of movies. And they're, and all those movies are great. And, and like I said, they're all about these middle-aged guys facing down mortality and desperately clinging on to sex and success to kind of face it off. And this is definitely the redheaded stepchild of those movies and, and kind of the least fun. But yeah. I, of, I will say, it is. I thought it was kind of a bold move when we talk about Larry Flint and and the death of Althea. This really is about the death of his daughter, and it yeah. really the end of the movie. I thought in a kind of bold way, really is about that. That's not a grace note to make you feel kind of bad for the guy at the end, like like you kind of get that feeling in Larry Flint, like. Oh, yeah, I but, thought it was kind of contrived. I, I thought that was that they announced early on in the first scene. Tell us about your daughter, and he's an old man. He's like, "Get away from me!" Um, I, I, and I just thought, it, thought oh, this is going to be it, like you know when. Okay, so it you know it brings to mind the great Dino De Laurentiis quote regarding the 1976 King Kong remake: "When monkey die, everybody gonna cry." <laughs> Like, like you thought it was just a tug at the heartstrings kind of thing. That's that yeah. Was the, I just thought to, to funnel the story through that was just to kind of like let's make this sort of melodramatic and see i actually know. thought seeing i like pretty pretty quick off the bat i was like oh okay this is another middle-aged guy powerlessness facing mortality yeah. movie and i really thought like you i didn't i didn't take it that way i didn't think you were supposed to walk away going oh man i really feel bad for raymond here i think it was supposed to be a completely sticking that powerlessness in the character's face and kind well, of would, kind of stepping say, back to say like wow this was a waste that to really drive home like this was a I great would disagree waste. because of the the very last bit with the you know the where are they now credits rolling uh as his daughter sings the look of love um I just thought it was so mawkish and cheap and uh but even then uh, even the credits where are they now were all yeah. like miserable <laughs> like yeah, uh, the whole yeah, point of yeah, where they all were now yeah. was like yeah he didn't get he like his money he like he uh, squandered it. it was it was all driving home the pointlessness of how yeah. he had avoided like all uh, adult responsibility basically yeah and and but, like larry flynn i also thought it is kind of interesting there certainly is a comeuppance at the end and you get that in larry flint too which i always think is weird do you remember the last scene is him watching the video of Althea Flint go and her saying, yes. you're going to be old and ugly. And, yes. and yeah. th definitely all these movies, that is always the comeuppance for our pornographer star. Yeah. Like, ooh, you've been bad is always like you've got to be old and ugly and you were fighting it this whole time. So so there is which, by the way, when we talk about Porn King is the yeah, <laughs> it's hard to argue that that's not what happens. <laughs> all right, well, let's move along here. Let's talk quick about uh, the love god question mark the love god maybe the most devastating of all these movies <laughs> Don Knotts the love god so uh, 1969 uh, written and directed by the great Nat Hiken a television sitcom genius who created Car 54 Where Are You and uh, the Phil Silver Show Sergeant Bilko um, specialized in bringing ugly awkward men uh, into the spotlight and making stars of them. Um, and this was, uh, you know, his take on the swinging sexual revolution of 1969, even though it feels and looks a lot more like a 1959 movie. And the premise of this film is that Don Knotts stars as a small town editor of a bird watching magazine who, through a series of <laughs> crazy mishaps, ends up at the behest of uh, gangster Edmund O'Brien running a porno magazine and becoming the coolest hepis sex god love god question mark in uh all of the sexually liberated land so your thoughts uh, god did they have to go through some cartwheels too with that story to keep him you know yeah <laughs> to keep him lovable don nuts and and that's the that is the amazing thing about this movie is that he was essentially like a family movie star at that time. You know, I'm I'm, I'm trying absolutely. to absolutely he's a, he's like five years off Andy Griffith at that point. Yeah, no, I mean he's the shakiest gun in the West, go, uh, incredible Mr. Limpet. I mean these are all very popular G-rated films, you know, and, family and, films. And know. it has to be said, he's hilarious in this movie. He's great. And, yeah. That whole opening sequence of him doing the 
funny bird calls in front of the congregation at church is it's a yeah. real is a real tour de force. Yeah. And um he's 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 very funny throughout the entire movie. And and it's you know, and if we're going to criticize Larry Flint for being episodic and not that well structured, <laughs> we, I, we can't really uh, sit here and say, "Yeah, oh, I really enjoyed the love God." I mean, talk about you know just a shapeless mess. But yeah, um, yeah. but he's he's very funny. There, there's a lot of funny performances in it, and I was the most delighted by B.S. Pulley, who I've always been just absolutely fascinated by as the uh, mobster gangster bad guy in this. Amazing, amazing villain, uh, unsung in cinema history. Yeah, because he really was apparently a scary yeah, psycho, sc- <laughs> scary gorilla of a human being. Yeah, he was a he was like a kind of a not vaudeville, but I mean Frank Sinatra said he was his favorite comic and he performed at nightclubs. Yeah. And from what I understand, I think some of this is in Cliff Nesterhoff's The Comedian's book, but from what I understand, wasn't his act literally to do things like walk into the audience in like 1960 with his penis on a phone and walk up to a woman to go like, hey, baby, it's for you. <laughs> or stick his penis in a sandwich and go, hey, honey, hungry. Like his act was sexual assault. Essentially. It really makes it really makes you want to see the blooper reel of the love god. Oh my god! Yeah, no, and and and, and the name BS Pulley. I mean, good lord! Yeah, we'll, we'll do a BS Pulley episode coming up. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's it's hard, and it, yes, and when we're talking about montages, just I love yeah. how Don Don Knotts' entire uh, rise to success is just the same static shot of him and like three <laughs> ladies in front of a blue screen in yeah. a series of different, you know, sixties yeah. outfits, in, like in marching groovy, proudly. Yeah, like tiger skin cape. Yeah. And then, yeah, it'll be like Vegas in the background and then yes. like, you know, Monte the, the Carlo Eiffel tower. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting, uh, and Nat Hyken died not long after the love god was finished. So <laughs> he was, he had, he had communicated feel, all Feel bad laughing to. so hard, but it's, it's, yeah, just the thought it's of. It's like I gave you, prank. I gave you Joey Ross and BS Pulley in there. Uh, Joey Ross, another guy who couldn't keep it in his pants. Uh, the great Gunther Tootie from Car 54, where are you? Um, and, and let me say who, this who, about, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, who also was in, like, uh, Gas Pump Girls, and uh, he, he did a, a couple of those teen sex comedies in the 70s. So, but go ahead. Uh, let me say this for The Love God, too. What, one thing that really impressed me about The Love God, especially for its time, the, for coming out in the 60s, is that I, I, am, I get crazy about when I see movies where they show a magazine or the show, and they do like a shitty job of copying typeface of, of the pen magazine exactly yes. exactly yes, i do, hate it they did a fantastic job Amazing. in this movie of the girly magazine styles of that time it really i noticed it completely yeah. Amazing, so well art directed, and and it, it was particularly shocking because they were copying the pornography at the time. Any sitcom yeah. that would have had a girly magazine at that time yeah. would have been just a smiling lady's face and yeah. bad typeface that said something yeah. like, you play know, woo, it was woo. always playpen. Yes, yeah. playpen, and and it's really one of the most impressive parts of this movie. Not to mention all the over the top his bachelor pad that he lives in and yeah the know. art direction the color the you know the great late 60s kind of russ meyer uh you know pop art saturated film stock and things like that very enjoyable yeah it's uh, fun yeah I, I, and, I, and interesting and deservedly so when it was reissued on dvd was rated pg-13 yeah and i yeah. would agree with that i would, I would have gone i would have gone yeah. nc-17 I, I mean, this this movie is hot. I would have been to see Don Knotts' eyes pop is so erotic. Yeah, we got it. The pop, Don. We got it. We read that. Okay, so it, it, let wait, us just move quickly. On. Just let me Go just ahead. say one thing. Isn't there the whole story about how Don Knotts? Isn't that the, always the take you hear is that he really was this stud swinger in real life? Like, have you ever heard that? You legend? know, yes, I have because that was kind of a thing that was in the air in the seventies. Yeah, um, and that became after Gracie Allen died. That became George Burns's whole persona it was like him walking around with like you know Playboy model playpen models on his arm, and right. uh, and I, that I, just I, sort of became a thing. And um, 
I would imagine it was uh, in the tradition of the scripts by uh, Larry Alexander and Kazarowski exaggerated. I feel like I've heard the anecdotes, though, and this in sitcom rooms. And I'm, anyways, I feel like I've heard the stories about. Well, Aaron is a TV writer, so yes, he, he's been in sitcom rooms. So I've been in sitcom Give us the dish. I feel like I've heard the stories of like. You know, Don Knotts came into the Three's company set and was like, I was out all night fucking, you, you know, or whatever. <laughs> that he was notorious for like, well, don't want to brag, but boy, was I, <laughs> I, you know, there's some, and I, God, I wish I could remember, there's some famous story about him on the phone calling in while he's having sex. God, I'm probably completely making this up, by the way. Yes. This is allegedly, allegedly. And this is Aaron uh, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is not Mike McBeardo McPadden. The That's right. Cinema. Yes. Anyways. Okay. So let us move on to Porn King, the rise and fall of Al Goldstein. Ooh. Man, this was a rough one. So, I mean, so this let's was give some, let's give taxi some back to the dark here. side. So, yeah. uh, Al Goldstein is a colorful character uh, from New York City. I was born in 1968. So was Screw Magazine, which was the weekly uh, newsprint periodical published by Al Goldstein initially and Jim Buckley. And uh, as uh, Aaron, uh, as Alan McDonnell pointed out early on, uh, like everything else in professional pornography, it was a combination of Jewish and Catholic sensibilities. Mm. Um and uh goldstein was the uh fat bearded uh you know stereotypical uh cigar puffing pornographer but th uh, by way of a hippie and what aaron and i um have pegged as these 70s characters called dirty bums which are just like you know the good time mustache guys wearing dirty t-shirts and you know reading hustler cartoons to their old ladies and their kids and, mm -hmm. um, all the and male all figures of, you and i grew up with yeah, all, exactly. the uncles all the men and, we admired yeah. most yeah and goldstein and, uh, more than any of them. i mean he embodies that i mean he really he is above and beyond i mean yeah. he, he went too far even for the dirtiest of dirty bums goldstein was would freak them out so screw um was uh a satirical newspaper it was full of gags it was um inspired by the other underground publications of the day like the east village other and paul krasner's the realist uh, filled with the cheapest oldest ugliest porn pictures that goldstein could buy in bulk like by the pound that he continued to run into the 90s the same photographs uh and then once buckley they continued they got busted a lot he did a lot of jail time for obscenity and always fought it always won beat the Pillsbury Corporation on a major landmark copyright infringement case because I believe on the cover they had like the Pillsbury Doughboy, you know, fucking a biscuit or something. I don't know. Right. And um, so an amazing character, always in the New York media, always around in New York City, always visible, uh, was always on the, all the local New York talk shows. Um, and yeah, he talked like this. And he complained constantly and really, I mean, pretty hilarious. Really, I got to say, a funny guy. Um, I wrote a lot for Screw. I met Goldstein a couple of times. I, I didn't have any kind of relationship with him like I did with Larry for a couple of years. Uh, and, you know, he, he was nice to me. Apparently a complete monster and nightmare to deal with. Um, oh, God, yes. Oh, my God. But in, in ways that, you know, I mean... He, you know, you'd hear these horror stories from the people that worked there. Um, but I'll say this, and way more so than Hustler. Screw paid well, and they paid fast, and they always paid on time. And the only other uh, business, media business I've worked in since then is Mr. Skin. So we got to say, Goldstein's good legacy lives on in the uh, Mr. Skin empire. So uh, a shout-out to another employer of mine. Um but so Screw is extremely raunchy, filthy, disturbing, nightmarish, way filthier than Hustler ever was. And uh, Larry's initial formula for Hustler, uh, our friend Alan McDonnell told me, um, was to have the uh, quality of Playboy, the humor of National Lampoon, and the raunch of Screw. So Screw really is the embodiment of raunch. So uh, the movie Porn King is a shot on video documentary. Um, that kind of center it centers on a lawsuit. So, oh, the other the other branch of Goldstein's media semi empire was Midnight Blue, his cable show. 
So uh, from the 70s onward, he had a public access show in Manhattan. There he would interview porn stars. And I believe you and I watched the outtake video of him getting his dick sucked. Didn't we, Aaron? Oh, on the, God. I, I, who knows? I believe we <laughs> did at the Hustler office, yeah. I, uh, I mean, that's one of many things at Hustler that my brain probably, you know, <laughs> shut down to protect itself. So, oh, God. Um, but Goldstein, so he would also take, he would fight these, in, you know, he would pick fights and he would go on these vengeance campaigns where, you know, he'd be like, uh, D'Agostino Supermarket, you shortchanged me. Fuck you! Oh God! If only he'd had Twitter. I mean, like that's yeah, that, that's it. It was it was yeah. raging editorials against the most petty targets possible. Yeah. Yes, and you know, funny from a distance, but you know, horrific up close, no doubt. And uh, Porn King takes us pretty up close. So Ooh. he also was a a serial. Uh, Husband, he he would marry and divorce, and then go through these ugly public divorces and beat the shit out of his wives uh, with words and disgusting cartoons and photo collages in screw. And the movie begins and so centers on a lawsuit filed by his former assistant, um, who he had you know just portrayed you know like blowing cocker spaniels and and things like that in screw, but also left. A bunch of psychotic answering machine messages in the, um, in the 90s for her, which was such a 90s thing to come home and get psychotic messages on your answering machine. Oh, but, um, yeah, and, and he's like, I'll take you down, cunt. You'll never work again, fucko. You're going to fuck me? Fuck. Like that kind of thing. So yeah. that's where the movie begins. And it gives us a quick history of Screw, and it takes us into Goldstein's world as it unravels. And as Screw um, marches into the death machinery of the internet, and Goldstein loses everything, and just loses absolutely everything. So um, it's very amateurish, uh, but cohesive. I think it works as a movie. And it's a fascinating, um, occasionally hilarious, and often repulsive, in a sometimes pleasurable, oftentimes not way, uh, but I would recommend Porn King. And you? I well, th this will be my. Uh, I uh, the the subject matter is uh, absolutely amazing, and it's amazing that this filmmaker was around to capture this incredible nosedive that Goldstein took. I mean, you're not even getting into into homelessness, into yeah. you know losing his teeth i mean it, it, like oh, it's, it's god oh my it's god was really it like cannibal tragic. holocaust shit when his teeth it's, came out at the end there it's really tragic and and it's incredible that this guy was around i did not think no i didn't think it worked cohesively as a documentary i which i don't you know it would have taken a really it would have taken a really um very skilled documentarian to try and uh, wrangle Goldstein as a subject and what was going on, I think, into a cohesive story. But I think probably the biggest problem, the biggest disagreement you and I have is I do not find Goldstein funny at all. And that's all <laughs> I could think the entire movie was he is so goddamn unfunny and so exhausting. And his Tourette-style eruption... I mean, I shouldn't even say Tourette's, forgive me. But anyways, his his constant eruption of here's the, you know, here's the ethnic slur, here's the here's the yeah. sexist slur here is just so exhausting. And like, please stop. And it's funny, you know, us talking about like, oh, the Me Too era, how it changed yeah. things. And whenever we talk about like, and you can't be that kind of comedian anymore. This right. movie made me go, oh, thank God for that. <laughs> thank God that shit is over. Because the whole world being like Al Goldstein then. And, and again, a lot of these things, like Larry Flint, it's, this is another movie that's really fascinating to visit in the Trump era. It, it, yes. Even more specifically, yeah. because Goldstein is that New York guy. Yes. And and honestly, him. There's a point where he's in the courthouse, and a female reporter is interviewing him for, for the local <laughs> yeah. news. And she says, "What are you gonna?" She says, "What are you gonna do?" You know, if you come back in here tomorrow, yeah. and the judge is like, "What are you gonna do?" And he goes, "What am I gonna do? I'm gonna show my cock and eat your pussy. That's what I'm gonna do." And <laughs> yeah. everyone around him laughs, and it, it does. It does remind me of 
Trump rallies where I'll, I'll, I'll see him say something that everybody laughs where I go, well, that's not funny. I mean, like, it's a, I guess it's a shocking thing to say at the moment, but I don't really get why we're laughing, you know? And it's, all right. It's, I, okay. I, I, I'm with you. I don't know why, but I, I oh. cackled at that moment. Oh God! And, uh, I found, I got to admit, I found it him included chilling. a bunch of my friends. Mike Edison was there. <laughs> oh, they're all laughing up a storm. It's <laughs> hilarious that he said this to this woman, and I'm like, she oh God, too. man. Yeah, oh uh, yeah, she looked like she was they, really enjoying it too. Let me tell you, it was it was no, a big hearty. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you, man, it's it's I don't know, it, it, it's nightmare footage. I mean, me, I'm not gonna you know? listen. I'm not gonna defend it, but I I do think it was. Uh, you know, may I fall back on this uh, short here? I do think it was a different time. The, um, the the funniest moment of it to me is when he shows up at the courthouse for a sentencing wearing the funny old timey cartoony that black was and great. white stripes. The prison, the prison outfit. They, and yeah. the best part is they cut to a group of um uh there's a like a, a couple uh people like young African American people who are watching and yeah. they they're like, what's his deal? What's he doing? Is he protesting? Yeah. And and, and yeah. they and the guy tries to explain it to him, and yeah. one of the guys just goes like, "Oh yeah, that'll go over good with the judge." <laughs> that just is just such a hilarious eye rolling. Yeah. Like, yes, I, it's uh, yeah. I you know my encounters with uh, Goldstein when I worked at Hustler Magazine were deeply unpleasant, and uh, and I gotta say, I I certainly didn't have a lot of fond feelings for the guy, but. It, watching watching this descent that he goes through was yeah. yeah it was really painful and and really painful in that kind of trollish way he does have self awareness you yes. know and and yeah. all the things I'm complaining about he was very aware there's the sad part where he says he, he says if if people stop paying attention to me I'll disappear like he yeah. he explains that's why I'm in this constant tantrum. Um, so, you know, so it's the very, uh, very, it's a very tragic portrait. And, um, I, I, and like I said, I gotta say, I, I did not, uh, did not particularly enjoy the ride. All right. Well, we'll, we'll split on that one as we do often on Al Goldstein. And then finally, <laughs> yeah. let's wrap it up quick with, uh, the Dragnet radio show. Oh my God. The, the uh, big book. The, the big book. So uh, this is an episode from, I believe, 1951, was it? Yeah, it was early. I looked it up yeah. because I thought it must have been around the time of the McCarthy, once it was getting into hearings about comic books and yeah. Betty Page stuff, and it's yes. not. It's, yeah. it's quite, a, quite a ways before that. Yeah. So uh, Aaron, so Dragnet, of course, is the began as the radio show of uh, a peculiar Hollywood genius named Jack Webb. Uh, who channeled uh, his particular take on Law and Order into a character named Joe Friday, uh, was also a jazz bow and, you know, made a couple of uh, very interesting uh, jazz movies, was married to Julie London, um, and deeply involved with the Los Angeles de Police Department, and then famously parodied in a movie that has aged very well, Dragnet, in 1987 with Dan Aykroyd. But uh, began like, and it was there were two iterations of Dragnet on TV. One was in the fifties uh, and early sixties, and then one came later in the late sixties, which is when they would go up against you know uh, Timothy Leary types and uh, the woman who smokes marijuana and drowns her baby in the bathtub, right? Like that. Uh, but this, so this is real uh, embryonic Dragnet, um, and the plot is about uh, Tijuana Bibles and dirty uh, comics and magazines being passed around high school students in the Los Angeles area. And Joe Friday and his partner get catch wind of this and they're gonna bust up the ring. And and it and I love the Dragnet radio show so much. I mean it's total yes. comfort food for me. I'm so obsessed with it. And I yes. you know when I started getting into it a couple of years ago, I remember telling you like it's it's amazing to me how naturalistic it is for radio of the of the time, you know, the late forties and early fifties. And and this this episode embodied for me one thing I love about it, which is the villains in Dragnet, the criminals, never deny that they're doing it. <laughs> they're always just like, they, there's no mystery. There's no like, right. they're always just like, yeah, all right, yeah, I'm making dirty yeah. books. What are you going to do? Watch it uh, to you. Yeah. yeah. What, what about it? Yeah. How? Okay, who am I right. hurting? That's always it. And then and yeah. then Friday 
always explains electrifyingly who they're hurting, how, yes. and why. Yes, that's the brilliance of it. That's the that's yeah. the brilliance of the Joe Friday character. When he's not, as he does at one point, when he's not sitting around with his partner, whoever his sidekick is yeah. at the time, just talking about like, Hey, uh, what's the uh, what's the little lady gonna make him for dinner tonight? <laughs> There's so much talk of that. I think, yeah, I think she said ravioli. I mean, yeah. that's that's the it. It could not be more, uh, you know, dogma style. Yeah, uh, they also it's just, have you ever noticed on the radio? They also order a lot of food. They're like, I went into a lunch counter, and very frequently, and this is a fascinating insight into fifties uh, Los Angeles. Friday will get a cup of black coffee and a plate of rice and beans. Oh God! Imagine being in that squad car with <laughs> Joe Friday. <laughs> Jesus Christ, riding around. <laughs> uh, yeah, and and yes, and 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 always setting the table with what the weather was in Los Angeles yeah. that day. It's just this incredible yeah. banality, you, you know, like it was yeah. cold in Los Angeles. Yeah. Uh, it's and so so it is uh, it is fascinating. It it is a fascinating little window into pornographers of the period. The whole yeah. the whole sequence where they raid a, a Bible publishing yeah. uh, like that a, was amazing. Press. So the pre- the plot is that this uh, Bible this religious book company uh, runs it all day, and then by night after their day shift, the regular workers have gone home. The pornographers come in and they run off their Tijuana Bibles and what have you. And that was amazing because I, you know, you, you it, it's again because I almost called him Friday because Jack Webb was so involved with actual detectives, you know, th- you would get glimpses into how crime actually worked, and that makes total sense that that's how these things were created with the, uh, you know, the shadow economy and doing things like you know coming in after hours, uh, much like we used to print our zines after hours where we sure. worked. And, and um, don't you love during that whole sequence they they bust it up they go in the back and another great thing about dragnet is the whole joke when you would hear people imitate dragnet you know when yeah. johnny carson would do his better the whole joke yeah. is everybody speaks in this flat monotone no you yeah. know there's no emotion yeah. it's complete emotionless right. the entire time but then when they go bust it up and they're everything goes ape shit where joe friday yeah. is like they're running out the back get him beat the <laughs> shit out of him kill the motherfucker Come back here, you piece of shit! Like, like, like they I, lose I, I their. I think minds. they bleep the motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> they lose their minds and there's stuff getting turned over. That's that's my favorite part. Is like, okay, well, now that, we're just going to go. And they her. do that on the radio show a lot more on TV because they do occasionally have an action sequence on the TV show and it's hilarious. Oh god! Where Joe Friday will say to like Harry Morgan, like, yeah, all right, you'll go around the other side. I'll get them to come out this window. <laughs> and then they have to like kind of pretend that they punch somebody. You know, they go behind a bush and you know they come up and the the bad guy's got a black eye and handcuffs on. The only thing I, I really missed from this was a lot of the old Dragnet episodes, especially around drug rings and stuff. Joe Friday will go infiltrate it, which is the best. Like him sitting yeah. there going, "Like I want to sell goofballs." You know, how many can you get me? <laughs> I I yeah. wish this had had oh, him can going. You imagine, like, yeah. I wish it had been like, I need to go to a photo shoot. You know, I need three yeah, blondes. Yeah. And a, like, that would have been yeah. so phenomenal. And I feel oh, like if, he, if he had done like the uh, George C. Scott and Hardcore when he meets Big Dick Black, <laughs> oh. Joe Friday. <laughs> by, by the way, when you're talking about the TV versions, a lot, yeah. m- most of these radio scripts were reused for TV. Yes, but but this, this one was yeah. not. No. Yeah, it was, t- which is interesting that they could even get away with it on radio, but not, but obviously but not on TV. They did, I think it's called The Big Producer. Um, that was another charming thing was all the, the titles were so often the big something, yeah. Um, which was about porno films, oh, um, wow. basically the same plot, but uh, involving, you know, uh, guys shooting movies after hours. Was that a late 60s one or one of the yeah, 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 black yes, and white yes, ones? Yeah. Oh, was, I got it. I got to see a, that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, they just had an estate sale at Jack Webb's house here in L.A. I found it online. I was Googling and I, I was going through the pictures and it was so fantastic. It was like, you know, his house was frozen in 1970 and it was like, <laughs> here's his man cave with the reel to reel player. You know, I, wow. I, I wanted to buy the whole house. Well, let's end with an interesting uh, Jack Webb uh, tidbit. Um did you know that the part of Dean Wormer in Animal House was written for him? Oh, God, that would have been so great. Oh, and Landis was hell-bent on getting him, and they were prepared to uh, 
go over budget, whatever it took. Landis said he went to Jack Webb's house. Webb had retired. Uh, the last thing he did was he produced the TV series Project UFO, of which I was a fan. In Me too. Fourth grade or whatever it was. <laughs> and um, so boring. Oh God! So boring. But uh, Webb had retired, and so uh, Landis said he sat there, he smoked cigarettes, he drank scotch. Landis did the full dog and pony show, and he just kept saying, "I'm retired. I'm retired." <laughs> You know, and that was God, I love him. It, I, I mean, there's a part of me that goes, God, I wish he would have done that. That would have been so amazing. There's the other yeah. side that's like, no, yeah. you don't want Jack Webb to be like, I'm actually secretly on the side of depravity. And, you, you know, you want to feel like <laughs> I, I, I actually I'm in on the joke. Like, no, you yeah. want him to be that right wing fascist. You know, that's a good point. And then, but and then, which is further cemented by the uh, episodes uh, often in the '60s, where he'll come out on the side of the uh, the long-haired hippies that have the right to assemble, or you know, these uh, love gurus have a right to, right to a different kind of uh, spirituality. And um, right, and my you know, and my alter, but but I mean, that kind of just it's, that just it cements uh, an extra dimension to his uh, right wingism. Um, uh, embodied by, and I guess we'll end on this because it's my favorite, one of my maybe my favorite television line of all time. Uh, an episode of Dragnet called I don't know what the big Nazi or something, but uh, a Nazi has planted a bomb in a school somewhere in uh, Los Angeles, and Friday and Joe are trying to break him uh, with interrogation, and they finally do, and he gets them to reveal where the uh, the bomb is, and they save the kids and everything, and it ends with Friday saying. <laughs> He said, you don't like minorities very much, do you? And the Nazi says, no, I don't. He goes, we are a psycho. They're a minority, too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, those those little punchlines of his are the absolute best. All right. So I think we're going to wrap it up here. This was uh, episode one of Crackpot Cinema. Come back. Um, Yeah, it can only get better, right? This is just episode. I would imagine. Let's hope to God. Yeah. Yeah, please. Uh, Yeah, that's right. Yeah, this will be the weird pilot, like when you watch, you know, Seinfeld's first episode or something. Like, man, took them a while to get their legs. (laughs) Right. But anyway, yeah, yeah, uh, we have a lot of fun stuff in store. Uh, I believe episode two, we're going to... We were going to call it Ritter a Cruel Episode, but <laughs> we're going to look at some of the, obscu- the uh, through the cracks work of John Ritter uh, coming up next time. So uh, thank you, everybody. Thank you, CP the EP, for helping us out with the tech stuff here. And uh, Aaron will come up with some kind of catchy way of saying, uh, save us the ILC. Oh, we do need our, that's good, our closing catchphrase, just like they right. used to say. Yes. Save if us you're the listening, podcast, send us, Yes. If you're listening, send us suggestions. Uh, Thanks a lot, everybody. We'll uh, be back again. Bye. Thanks.